0: Hey, Alex. How's hey, it going? How you doing? Good, good. Um, so we met like 11 years ago, but we haven't really like uh, talked since you made the move to Austin. Um, right. So tell me like how life's been the last couple of years. Should we do
1: like a, a background intro? Just let everybody know how we met. That might be interesting for them. Sure. Go ahead. All right. Uh, so I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area before everything went crazy. Um, you know, and when I was in third or fourth grade, I believe. State of California passed Proposition 187, which was later overturned by the Supreme Court, um, you know, banning illegal immigrants from receiving public services. Um, when I was a senior in high school, the state shot down gay marriage in 2004, um, but I wanted a little bit of change. You know, I wanted to go to a different part of the country, so I went to Vanderbilt University on a baseball scholarship where I played for four years, majoring in economics, um, spent almost all my time on the field and learned almost all of my life lessons from playing baseball, believe it or not. So despite graduating um, with an economics degree with honors, um, most of my worldviews and ideologies came from uh, operating in a 35-man team in a, a very competitive environment, learning you know, the limitations of logic and logical thinking and university-based thinking, um, as well as some of the advantages of irrational thinking from a performance standpoint. Played professionally for a couple of years afterwards, uh, which point it became obvious that I was not going to make the major leagues and uh, fell back on my university degree and ended up connecting with a hedge fund manager who was managing a fund based in Hong Kong. Uh, This man was worth over hundred million dollars. He flew me around in private jets and he opened my eyes to conspiratorial thinking which at the time was not as popular. uh, Tuned me into the foundations of the Federal Reserve. I actually fact checked him every step of the way and came to believe exactly what he was saying at least with respect to the Federal Reserve. Being a private corporation was 100% true. Um, Read the Federal Reserve Act started to uh, see things from a different point of view, from a non-institutional point of view. Uh, and that actually traces back to my inability to penetrate mainstream finance. So um, I think most people are gonna support systems that support them, which is one reason why I think you'll have challenges talking to Ivy leaguers, convincing them uh, that certain things are scams because if they believe they're scams and it questions the, their ego, it questions uh, their meaning in the world, But when I went to go work for this boutique hedge fund manager, it was solely because mainstream Wall Street would not interview me because I was an experienced hire with two years of professional baseball under my belt. But I had no experience financial modeling or doing any of the things that they expect their minions to be able to do. So um, despite the fact that I graduated uh, from a good university with honors, with a degree in what they're looking for, and despite the fact that I got drafted by a major league baseball team, Uh, My unique background did not fit in the uh, the large scale production that is Wall Street recruiting. So, you know, I was my back was uh, uh, turned on or or, or I guess mainstream corporate America turned its back on me. And so I became more inclined to kind of sift through everything and and kick the tires and say, does this all make sense? Uh, So I ended up connecting with this fund manager. We got along quite well, moved to Hong Kong, um, which is where I met Jack at a Barclays event, uh, December, 2010, and uh, found out that we both read Zero Hedge a lot. We both (laughs) uh, believed in a lot of the same conspiracies. And um, the move I made, which I guess I was a couple of years ahead of Jack there, was I thought that the tech sector was gonna do really well, given all of uh, what we believed about uh, central banks keeping interest rates really low, debasing the currency to bail out Wall Street. And uh, I thought I wanted to bet on tech because tech is the one sector that's um, most dependent on uh, subsidized interest rates. You know, financing for startups becomes a lot easier when uh, venture capital firms are able to get large sums of money from uh, people who can't get 6% from US treasury bills. And uh, so I moved back to Silicon Valley where I grew up. Um, elevator pitched my way into Google, learning a lot, you know, leveraging a lot of the skills that I picked up in baseball for how to talk to people, how to convince people to give me a chance. Spent two years doing sales at Google then did uh, two years of corporate strategy followed by a couple years of product partnerships. And then when the crypto markets uh, started taking off in 2017, knew Jack had been in the space for several years. Uh, When he would come through San Francisco, we'd still hang out. And uh, I thought, you know what? I understand a lot about why um, people might be turning to crypto as opposed to fiat currencies. Um, Let me bet on this space. And so I remember um, meeting up with Jack, I think, January uh,
0: 2018 in Hong Kong. That's it. Yeah, we met in Hong Kong, but then we also had sushi when you were out in uh, San Francisco around this time. That's probably after you got the job. That was
1: after after I got in the space. But before I got in the space, I remember Jack telling me for uh, uh, expensive whiskey, I believe, is what we were drinking, Japanese (laughs) whiskey, saying, um, you you shouldn't wait to get a counter offer for what you're doing, if you believe in this space, just quit your job and do it. And uh, I thought, well, Jack's been saying a bunch of crazy stuff for the last 18 months, but he's been right about everything. So let me let me not listen to my own brain that's telling me, "Hey, hold your horses," and say, "Well, Jack's been right about a lot of far out stuff." But he's been saying this would include the 2016 election. This would include the 2017 bull run and the crypto markets. I think you know when he was saying that. Bitcoin's going to be, you know, $10,000, 20000 35000 back in 20, uh, 2017, you know, people were early 2017 and I was like, what is this guy posting about? This guy's nuts. And he was saying, you know, certainly Trump's going to get elected in 2016. It's like, well, I think he has a better chance than what the mainstream is giving him, but I don't think it's a certainty. Well, Jack was right about that. And so um, counter to my intuition, which was stay with my job until you get an offer with a better job um i took jack's advice i quit my job at google without my next job lined up um spent several months doing the entrepreneur thing um you know networking in crypto and then ultimately ended up taking a job with uh, jack's former group um, as they were looking for somebody to uh, help expand out their offering in the us and so i spent a few years doing um, business development at OKCoin, okay where i realized that if i want to have any relevance in the crypto space Um, I need to have a Twitter following because Twitter is a pretty valuable platform in crypto. And so I had a lot more success sharing what I do in fitness, which is, you know, stay lean year round without counting calories, eating delicious food every meal without hitting my workouts. Figured out a lot easier way to do it than what everybody thought they had to do as far as like eating salads, going hungry, uh, fasting, hating workouts, doing a ton of cardio. Uh, I was able to lose over 20 pounds of fat um, not doing any of that, and so that's what uh, got me started in the social space, monetizing products, sharing how I eat, sharing how I cook, sharing how I train. Um, and then that led me to being able to make, um, you know, a, a living on my own behalf, uh, independent of a corporate entity, which I started doing full time at the middle of last year.
0: Yeah, I mean, in many ways, our story like sounds kind of similar, and um it's super interesting to see how sort of the path has been paved the last like 10 years we've known each other more than 10 years and I think we were having these kind of conversations in our very beginning like dinners at Alfredo one of our favorite restaurants that you recommended me to I'm not sure oh, if that fits your diet anymore but we were talking about money printing still does. huh it, does? it still does yeah Still does okay cool yeah um because like I remember I was studying finance and and I played one year of varsity basketball too and as like a Cause, cause, considering how skinny I am now, I was so skinny uh, in, when I was playing uh, varsity basketball that it was just like that competitiveness that you talk about with baseball that, that formed you. And um, I was studying finance and economics and things like didn't make sense to me uh, even before I got to Barclays, but at least Hong Kong made sense that in the sense that it was like free. It hadn't really been taken over by China yet. It was like no capital gains tax. That all made sense, but I think it's been interesting to see how the world has gone from, like your career went from finance, like to tech, to then crypto, to then creator economy, something like you're passionate about, you can monetize on your own without a corporate entity. I think that's been the story for like a lot of people. Like I, know, I remember when major grads uh, came out of Harvard or MIT and they wanted to get a banking job, right? Mm-hmm. And then they wanted to get like a tech job. Then now they want to get a crypto job. And now everyone's talking about Web3 and creator economy. It feels like this is like a theme and it relates a lot to books like The Sovereign Individual and, and things like that. Speak on sort of why you think this is happening. And maybe that explains sort of the difference in opinion that you see on Twitter. Sometimes I often notice that the people who are working for themselves or kind of moved into that creator economy is having a very different reaction to sort of the general mainstream policies that you come out of see out of politics and people who work mm-hmm. in that yeah well i think
1: what technology has enabled is more people to make money more on their own and i won't say completely on their own because twitter can kick me off their platform anytime they want um you know gmail can suspend my service so i, I obviously am, i'm not like independent and I have an impenetrable moat around all of the systems that my business relies on. But compared to depending on a uh, corporation to pay me a steady paycheck, I'm much more independent. I have much more diverse revenue streams. And what that enables is more creativity, obviously. And I didn't realize this while I was working at Google. I was always waiting for that idea that I would work on on the side and that I could get up to a few thousand dollars a month of profit that I could just quit my job and focus on building it and scaling it full time. Well, that idea never came to me at Google, and I never was actually able to think like an entrepreneur until I no longer had that steady paycheck. That was, you know, maybe justifying me not putting forth the effort into seeing all these opportunities. But just like wrestlers when they go through weight cuts, their sense of smell becomes very, very acute after many hours of not eating because mm. you have to to survive. When you no longer have a steady paycheck it forces you to see niches and opportunities that you probably wouldn't see if you were having a steady paycheck. And if you're aggressive and and ambitious enough to jump on those, and if you're successful enough to where um, you can live on the income that you're making, it uh, allows you to think more, more and more independently. And the more independently you think, the less likely you are to believe the mainstream narrative and the more likely you are to think those who do believe the mainstream narrative are sheep because they're not accounting for very obvious flaws in what we're being told um, that sort of invalidate the mainstream narrative. And so I think you know technology has enabled us to think outside the box by way of uh, working in smaller groups, succeeding in smaller groups or even on our own. Um, and I think that'll persist until uh, our overlords decide that they want to economically cripple everybody and force them to become dependent on the state and corporations again.
0: But they have already made that decision. They've made that decision all along, right? But you're just seeing them trickle the policies in that makes it harder and harder for you to make that jump.
1: Correct. Correct.
0: Yeah. And I think it's interesting when you're, I kind of think of the world as always having been in chaos. Yes. Except the chaos is hidden from you. And it's like the idea of buying insurance. You pay a huge premium to buy the insurance to make it look like you're covered, but like, it's not a good deal for you. So like, like going to school is an insurance, getting a corporate job is a sort of form of insurance. And it almost feels like um, when you do go off on your own, you might initially not make as much. But just as you are thinking about your steady paycheck, and that's why you don't want to quit to do your own thing. Once you have a little taste of success on your own, even if someone offers you the corporate world back at like a premium to what you're making, you're constantly thinking, how do I avoid that? How do I go? Mm -hmm. You're like on the different side of the fence now. And once you go that side, it's hard to go back.
1: Yeah, I mean, the number one thing that I think about as a creator is how can I do this for as long as possible, right? Because I I mean, I recognize that my business is vulnerable. I don't yet have revenue diversity across uh, social platforms, right? Most of my Most of my buyers come by way of Twitter. And if something happened to Twitter or my account or the algorithm like that would really compromise my ability to to provide for myself as it presently is. And so, you know, for the 15 months or so that I've been doing it, um, I've made nearly as much as I was making, you know working for a a well-funded tech company and that's fine. And I can keep living the way I wanna live. You know, if that money keeps rolling in. Um, and I just want to figure out how I can preserve this as long as possible because more and more opportunities present themselves to me, to me the longer I'm in this game.
0: Yeah. It's super interesting. So like, I know a lot of people obviously on, on social media and through the books that they, they buy from you, uh, are keen to learn about fitness and about health. Um, I'm curious to ask about the business of Alex Feinberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if to, as much as you're willing to share, it's like when you make these posts, or when you sit down to write one of these books, whether it's a nutrition guide or a workout guide, and then you go about sort of marketing it, what are the steps that, um, that goes through that in terms of deciding like, what's your price point? Like, is, do you go for more customers, less customers? What kind of conversion rate do you find when you do make those tweets out? Like, Hey, I did this, this is a testimonial. And I kind of see the playbook. I follow you a lot, Mm -hmm. sort of like every week or every, every day you'll, you'll promote different kind of program. Walk me through mm-hmm. some of that business.
1: Yeah, so I write the way I speak. I just try to deliver my message as clearly and concisely as possible. And so, um, you know, even my diet framework, right? People think they need to write 60 page, 80 page books because that's the type of books that we would buy when we were younger. But to me, that's superfluous. You know, most of the tools that I use to solve problems can be explained in 10 to 20 pages. And so I think, well, why create more content that doesn't help people? I don't use it, it's just fluff. Um, I'm not in college, I don't have to meet a word count. I'm just gonna get people what they want as as precisely and directly as possible. So it takes me about a couple of weeks to put together a new ebook, um, because everything I do, I've tested myself, I can explain exactly why I think it works, why it doesn't work, what shortcomings are, what the edge cases are for why it won't work. For some people, uh, I just know these things. And, uh, and so I'll put pen to paper or you know, fingers to my keyboard, write it all out for a couple of weeks, find some images, send it to a, a fiber designer, go back and forth on several iterations to, to get it to a point where I think it's commercially presentable. Um, and then usually I'll just launch it. You know, in the beginning I, I had more affiliates who were promoting my products because that was something that was more common on Twitter uh, at the time a couple of years ago. Now I think people are affiliating less for others. Um, as I think Gumroad courses are not as unique as they were two or three years ago. Um, and so I'll just put it out. The price point that I charge, I charge a higher price point than, than most people, just because I found that, uh, you know, if I put an ebook out at a $49 price point, I might have a 3% conversion rate. If I put it out at a 25% price point, I might have a four and a half percent conversion rate. So, you know, and then the other thing is like the higher the price point you charge, um the less uh, kind of cheap people who you have in your ecosystem and so one thing that you'll find paradoxically um, is if you charge high price points you get better customers mm. and uh, across industries people say that they're the people who give them the most headaches are the, are the ones who buy the lowest cost products and so I've I've issued lower cost products before and the people who buy those lower cost products complain more than the people who buy the higher cost products not that they complain a lot but but it's more, you know, 1% of people who buy your stuff are not gonna like it no matter how good it is. Um, but if it's a lower price point product, maybe it's 2%. And so I just don't wanna deal with those people. Um, you know, I, I would like to target growing my uh, my daily product revenue, um, at least on a month to month basis or quarter to quarter basis, because that's a leading indicator for how my coaching revenue is gonna come in. Right now my business is structured about 50-50 between product revenue, coaching revenue. Um, And I will say that right now my business isn't an investable business because it doesn't have the monopolistic attributes that you would expect um, from a highly investable business. So one of the challenges about commercializing a good and effective approach to fitness isn't that complicated at all, right? It doesn't require uh, constant maintenance. It requires constant maintenance, but it doesn't require constant coaching, right? And so one of the benefits that the profitable solutions have and the investable solutions have is they don't work right away, right? And so people, can, people are much more inclined to buy into things that offer them linear progress, whether it's a <laughs> career or a service that they're buying because they can check that they've made progress over two weeks, may not be all the progress that they want, but they're an inch closer to their goal so they can keep investing the time and resources and energy. Um, the challenge with my business is for the people who um, have had tremendous results with it, they get those results in one, two, three, four months, and then they don't need me anymore. And so it's like, I'm transforming people's lives. And sometimes it's like for $500 or less. And you think like, wow, if this person didn't come across me, they're probably looking at tens of thousands of dollars of medical bills, as well as uh, decreased life satisfaction, shortened life expectancy. Um, If I'm solving that problem, that should be a 50,000 price point product, but good luck convincing people that, hey, um, I'm not going to let you try it and you got to pay me $50,000 for me to work with you. um, And you'll see after the fact, right? People want to try things are understandable, skeptical in the beginning. But if people learn the secret sauce within like four to six weeks, I don't have the the negotiating leverage to say, okay, now I'm going to take it away from you unless Mm. you pay me the $50,000 that it's actually worth to you. So as it stands right now, like my masterclass goes for $400 when I run sales, get it for a couple hundred bucks. And when people get that and they actually apply it to their lives very frequently, they're getting tens of thousands of dollars of value from it. Hmm. And, you know, good, good for the customers, but that's not good from a business uh, structure standpoint. If I were uh, better at structuring my business, I'd figure out a way to have a little bit more monopolistic attributes to it with a little bit more recurring revenue.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Well, I think crypto will have some way of helping someone like yourself. I want to talk about like, like you said, fitness is pretty easy to follow. It's about discipline once you pick your plan and, and whatnot. Um, so I would like to think that like your meteoric rise on Twitter, I think you got like what? 50,000 followers now? Forty, A little under 42. 40, 42. And that's like maybe three, four X what I have. And I've been talking about crypto for like seven, eight years. Mm -hmm. And so how much do you think, I think I have a guess here, but like how much do you think your Twitter uh, rise was because you were putting out amazing fitness programs and tips like that? And how much is it, do you think your opinions on politics, on the global economy, on uh, corporate uh, overlords are not mixed with like well, in the beginning, it was almost purely fitness because
1: I wasn't talking about politics, and um, and then, you know, I realized that if I want to sell more products, I need to have more traffic coming to me, and I also realized that I'm a neurodivergent thinker like you are, and so I realized that if I just simply write the things that I think, that is going to make me stand out relative to other people because I think a lot of thoughts that other people consider to be dangerous or at the very least cause them to scratch their heads and think, I wonder, this guy, what's going on in this guy's mind? And so my followers are, you know, they're generally interested in fitness, but that's not why they like my account. They like my account because I'm able to articulate the things that are on the, the tip of their tongue that they can't quite articulate themselves, but they have a general feeling that something approximating what I'm saying is going on. Um, and so, you know, a lot of fitness accounts rise, you know, not just talking about fitness, but talking about things that are closely related to it, like, personal sovereignty, accountability, self-development. Because if you're gonna develop the tools to have a really good body, you also have to have the strong personal accountability. You can't have a victim mindset. And the people who are very accountable and are self-accountable tend to steer towards sovereign individuality or individualism. Um, And they tend to align politically, even though they're not very political and maybe most of them never even voted um, even once in their lives.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I think like if you had gone to a consultant about how to grow a fitness business, they would definitely tell you, do not make those comments. That's going to turn away like half your customers Mm -hmm. and it's very dangerous. But um, there's definitely something about the idea that fitness itself or any category is pretty saturated, number one. And number two, I, I think part of the appeal to someone following you is like, like you said, these ideas are at the tip of their tongue. But maybe they feel like because they don't have a great body, because they're still working ninety-five, they feel like they don't have the confidence that you have uh, to speak those thoughts. And they part of the the dream of like having a more fit uh, body a uh, lifestyle is to have that like um, status or platform uh, to be able to say these thoughts. I think that's kind of where your appeal comes from. Well, it's
1: definitely important. I realized when I first started, you know, going down the conspiracy rabbit hole that I'm saying a lot of things that make people uncomfortable Mm. and really question, you know, some of their foundational understandings of the world. And I need to be good looking if I'm going to say these things, because if I'm, they're going to look for anything they can to dismiss what I'm saying. So if I'm fat, it doesn't matter how logical the points I'm making are, they're going to dismiss it. Um, If maybe if I'm not fat, but I just don't look good. I don't speak well. I don't dress well. They're going to use that as a a reason to rationalize why it makes sense to ignore me. And so I think the more things that you have that you can throw in people's faces and say, no, I'm not saying this because I'm a disgruntled individual who, who can't get along in mainstream society. I'm saying it. I can't as proof by the fact that I speak well and good looking, went to a good school, worked at prominent companies, and I still believe it. Right. That makes, that makes it mean so much more. It's harder for people to ignore me uh, unless they're of the disposition that anybody who disagrees with them is inherently wrong and evil. Then of course they can easily bucket at me as whatever they want to.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, specific to fitness. I want to talk about the conspiracy part of fitness. Like there's always stats online that talk about like testosterone levels 30, 40 years ago, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And it has gone down and there's this idea that the state wants to demasculinize men mm-hmm. so they can't like revolt mm-hmm. uh, and you know sports back when we played was about finishing first now it's about like participation trophy uh, it was about
1: participation trophies for a while depending on the, the yeah segment. it was
0: starting there when even when we were kids but uh depending on how how high you played so like how much do you buy into that and how much do you think this trend might be reversing and people are starting to take care of their themselves in the next generation? so
1: i'm not certain that there's an overt strategy to um emasculate men okay i do think there's a, an overt strategy to psychologically emasculate men i think the concept of toxic masculinity is promoted by those in power who want to disempower their most likely dissidents, which are typically men from the age of say 15 to 35. And if they can stigmatize dissent, which is what toxic masculinity is, it's a stigmatization of dissent, um, then they can effectively hamstring those who might in other circumstances form uh, a revolutionary coalition and depose them from their uh, positions of uh, of social and political power. I'm less inclined to think that there's an overt strategy to chemically emasculate people, but I do think that's what's going on. You know, whether it's it's an overt strategy of social control or merely capitalism playing out, um, I'm more inclined to think it's capitalism playing out, where people realize, you know, it's easier to replace uh, food or excuse me, food and Freudian slip, animal-based products with plant-based products because you can manufacture them in factories and uh, sell them at higher margin. And so over the course of the last 40, 50 years, we've seen a transition away from uh, lard beef tallow, McDonald's used to make their fries and beef tallow, towards soybean oil, cottonseed oil, uh, peanut oil, canola oil, safflower oils, um, which I think are seen to be um, somewhat inflammatory and and cause distortions in in the metabolism. And I, I think a lot of the reasons why we have become as obese as we have as a society or or not just because people eat so much food. I think that people's uh, caloric consumption hasn't actually gone up over the last 20 years but our obesity rate has. So if your caloric consumption hasn't gone up, your activity level hasn't really gone down. We're pretty sedentary 20 years ago. Some people are still sedentary now. Some people do CrossFit now. Um, If the physical activity of a society is relatively stagnant, the caloric consumption is relatively stagnant, but the rise of obesity is, is there to me, this indicates that it's actually an endocrine question for its people's, uh, you know, hormone production that is causing their bodies to prefer to hang on to fat at the expense of lean muscle. And this dives into, you know, what I I've come to believe my fitness system is all about, though. I didn't realize it at the time, Mm. all I was trying to do when I was developing my fitness system is find the easiest way, to accomplish the hard thing, which is adding, adding lean mass and cutting and cutting body fat. And I found that it wasn't necessary at all to count calories. In fact, counting calories oftentimes limited my ability to be successful in addition to making it harder. Right. And so the, the modern approach to fitness is fat loss is a question of thermodynamics. If you burn more calories than you eat, you will lose weight. If you eat more calories than you can, uh, then you burn, you will gain weight. And it's like, that's true, but it, Uh, omits the fact that the biggest line item in how many calories you're burning is actually your resting metabolic rate, which is what your metabolism is doing outside of the gym. Mm -hmm. So it's not what you're doing while you're training that's causing your body to plow through pounds of steak and pasta. It's the way you're training and your body's physiological adaptation to that training that's causing a change in your metabolic system, that's causing a change in your resting uh, resting metabolic rate that will make you go from, say, burning 1,800 calories a day at rest to 2,600 calories a day at rest. Oh, well, guess what? If your body's burning 800 calories more when you're not even at the gym, that's the equivalent of doing a 90-minute workout. But you're not even doing it because your body's burning that calori- those calories when you're sitting on your couch watching TV. And so to me, just like wealthy people are able to make money passively through investments in Right. um, in, uh, you know, cash yielding businesses, debt, you know, equity securities. Um, somebody who's in shape is going to invest his time in a training program as well as a diet. That's going to maximize his resting metabolic rate, which is effectively, ma- effectively maximizing his calorie burn while he's sleeping. Right. Cause if you're not burning calories while you're sleeping, you're probably going to be fat. And if you're not making money while you're sleeping, you're probably going to be poor. Same thing.
0: Very interesting, very interesting. Um, so if, if you, is the hedge fund manager you first worked with in Hong Kong, is he still alive or are you still in touch? Yes, he's
1: still alive. I'm still in touch with him. He's not in Hong Kong at the moment. He's
0: been in team. Did he make a killing the last 10 years, you'd say, or was he too No, far? not the last
1: 10 years. Um, one of the last times I was in Hong Kong would have been early 2020, if not early 2019. One of those two times. I was in Hong Kong, I think, both of those times.
0: Yeah, we met um, right? Annual parties for or annual events.
1: Yeah, and there were a few annual parties. So I'm not sure which one um, coincided with me having dinner with him. Whether it was January 2019 or January 2020, but I had dinner with him, and he was just a broken man. You know, his belief in how the markets uh, were structured. He was bracing for an economic collapse because he didn't think Keynesianism was sustainable, and he was holding a majority of his positions in physical gold. Right, he had a couple tons of physical gold. In the Hong Kong airport waiting for fiat currencies to blow up and physical gold to, you know, be worth $5,000 an ounce. And that obviously never happened. So he, well, NASDAQ or the S&P, you know, tripled, quadrupled, pentupled, septupled. Um, He was sitting on physical gold that kind of stayed stagnant for 10 years. And it wasn't until COVID where he took a second look at at Bitcoin Core um, and said, okay, I'm going to place an investment in Bitcoin Core he bought uh, 4,000 Bitcoin at about 6,500 um, per BTC. And by the time the price quadrupled, he unloaded 25% of his position, uh, zero tax, because you know, you know pay capital gains taxes in Hong Kong. Yep. And so he's been riding, and I, don't, I don't know if he's exited the position, but he's been riding at 3,000 BTC profit, which is at one point, it was $1.170 million profit. Now I don't know yep. if Bitcoin Core is trading at now, 60, $70 million profit. But he was able to overcome, you know, his non-performance over ten years with like one big trade, um, and so he he felt pretty good about himself. Particularly when Bitcoin was trading, Bitcoin Core was trading over forty thousand or something like that. Well, he he doubled his money in eighteen months, just kind of operating outside the matrix and and seeing the writing on the wall.
0: Mm-hmm. That's very interesting because, like, a lot of these macro plays, when you look back, um, it's hard to get the timing right. Mm-hmm. I think mostly because you underestimate to the degree that the players in the existing system are able to keep the train going.
1: Yeah, inertia is the rule. The inertia will make things last a multiple longer than, than gravity suggests it should.
0: Yeah, and I find like that I'm like this same as your hedge fund manager, where it looks like my friends are like, Jack, you called crypto. You were in crypto all these years what do you mean that you now are in something called BSV or mm-hmm. uh, Bitcoin SV? And it, it might seem a little bit crazy. Um, and I sometimes I have to remind myself that like, literally the fiat system has been going untied to gold for 50 years. Mm-hmm. And instead of not using fiat, the world is having debates about like, oh, can I get a bailout? Can I get $10,000 more of fiat? And like, they're still like running on this system. And- mm. It reflects, I think, the difference in thinking in like a debt-based thinker like, and an asset-based thinker. And I feel like- Yeah,
1: I mean, it, I don't, I don't know. even know if, if we need to get that technical about it because people will always see the world in a way that advances their interests. And, right. you know, most people just want to make more money. And if they just want to make more money and, and they get more money from the government, you know, forgiving their student loans, if they make more money from their company, giving them a bonus that is predicated on rising asset prices, they don't care. They're just, they're not incentivized to care or question why they're receiving the money. They're just glad that they have it, right? And so it takes a special type of individual to think back and actually connect dots, because most people don't really understand how systems work. They understand what they've been told in school, and then they quickly forget it. That, Like, I think the difference between you and me relative to other people is we're both capable of learning an explanation that's been presented to us in a university format. And we're also capable of seeing the inconsistencies between that, that explanation and the real world application where yeah. most people are only capable of doing one or the other. And when you have fluency in both academic like academic linguistics and, and academic thinking, but you also have fluency in, in understanding um, you know, inherent contradictions or empirical contradictions in that explanation, you know, then you start having an existential crisis of like, wait, this is not true. What, they're, what everybody is believing is not true. This can't go on forever. They're all gonna realize what's obvious to me. You don't realize that Most people don't actually have the tools to realize what might be obvious to you or me. So the system will persist typically until there's like a cataclysmic event or some, some catalyst that sets that first domino in action. right? And so you can't look at a system that, that is in place due to inertia and say, well, it's going to collapse. It's like, you might be right, but they said Rome was going to collapse for like 200 years and they were right, but it took several generations for that to happen. And I think that's the same thing with the fiat system is like, even though a lot of it's impractical, a lot of it still works, right? We're seeing high inflation, but our high inflation, you know, even if the BLS is understanding it by double or triple is still under 30%, which is still more stable than most other fiat currencies are managed. And so, you know, the... Uh, the, the flawed system can persist with inertia for a lot longer than it could if people could just rationally think like, Oh, this doesn't make sense. Let's just swap it out. We'll do a software update. Like mm-hmm. currencies aren't like iOS updates. They take a, a lot of damage and uh, and, and catalysts and geopolitical change for an update to occur.
0: Yeah. I know you got like um, bearish BTC around 60 K, which was like very good call. Um, what uh, through your years of you've obviously heard me talk about crypto or Bitcoin since like 2013, and then you li- you worked in it from like 2017 to 2019 or 2018 2020. Now you're kind of doing your fitness thing. Take me through sort of where like crypto uh, will go, and sort of will you kind of you know go back into that industry, or how is it different than working at Google?
1: When I joined crypto, it was still young, right, where you didn't have to have a Wall Street background to have a business development role or a sales role. At this point, uh, what we saw over the last cycle is a migration from from Wall Street trained individuals into crypto funds and and crypto exchanges. And so it's possible that, you know, I might not even have the experience to re-enter the space now because if everybody has four years of Goldman Sachs and Mm -hmm. their resumes are being filtered and vetted by people with six years of experience at Goldman Sachs, well, they're gonna see what I'm doing and they're gonna be like, what the hell does that have to do with this? Um, so I like the fact that the industry is new. And I think one thing that's commonplace among societies, industries, as well as companies is in their earlier stages, they almost have to be libertarian. You have to have a high degree of personal accountability for anything to move. Um, and so whether it's Uber, whether it's Google, whether it's uh, the United States, in their early foundations, it was uh, rugged individualism, personal mm-hmm. accountability that allowed for the foundation to be built uh, upon which a, a larger, more prosperous society could, uh, could come after. Phase two, uh, when, that's, when that initial foundation has been laid, phase two is finding workers. Well, the way you find workers at scale is, is very different from the way you find individual thinkers who can join your core founding team. Yeah. so the way you find people at scale is by looking at LinkedIn attributes, which are commoditized attributes. How many years of experience do you have? Where did you go to school? Like you, when you're hiring for a group of three, four, five, six, you know certain skills that you want, but you're likely to bring other people on board who have skills that you couldn't articulate before you met the guy. And then you meet the person and you're like, yeah, I'd love this person to be on our team. Whereas when you start hiring at scale, you don't have the leeway to say, well, we're just going to kind of talk to a bunch of people and, and see who's a good fit. And we'll have a little bit of a qualitative approach, a little bit of a quantitative approach, put a lot of trust in our hiring managers to find the people that they think work best. No, when when companies, when societies scale, they need to have more rules in place to avoid corruption. But the byproduct or the externality of the greater degrees of rules in place is it, is it recruits institutionalized thinkers who are more likely to follow rules, less likely to think outside the box? And had they had those skills, they would not have the resume that would have passed uh, you know, the recruiter's sniff test. Right.
0: Um,
1: and so these people start to get excluded from participating at the higher levels of more scaled institutions. And then they'll just kind of go back to working on smaller stage stuff where they can be rewarded for being individualistic, be rewarded for being neurodivergent thinkers, yeah. um, and they'll abstain from joining these large scale uh, systems that uh, seek to uh, confine their thinking and confine their actions to uh, items that can be easily uh, scored and placed upon an Excel table.
0: Yes, yeah, a couple of things I want to pick up on there. That's super interesting. Do you think like, like obviously as crypto has grown, and mainstreamed uh, in 2020, 2021, uh, you saw that wave of hiring develop. I think when I left OK on a full-time basis, it was like 200 people or 300 mm-hmm. people. And now I heard from my friends there, it's like 3,000, 4,000, going to be 5,000. And oh, really? yeah, it's something It's something crazy. Now, I, I think they might be generous with the way they count customer service or something like that, um, uh, mm-hmm. but certainly like five, 10X bigger easily. Um, do you think that like that presumes that crypto can be contained in an institutional way, the way tech was uh, or, or internet was? Cause like, I see, I don't know if it's just a bear market, but I do see like reports that Coinbase's earnings is, is down, that they're losing a billion dollars a quarter. You know, I, I don't read the financials, but like, if I get that wrong, don't sue me. Like, is it like harder to continue to just add this kind of, um, I wouldn't call it generic, but like, corporate trained staff to scale your crypto company because there is such disruption happening like every era, like you go from Coinbase to Poloniex to Binance to FTX to Uniswap to now DeFi, like all kinds of craziness. Is it hard to like, do those two things come against each other? Basically.
1: They do um, some for reasons that you're alluding to some, not for reasons that you're alluding to. So one of the reasons why it's hard to scale a team in crypto is Why are you interested in crypto? Oh, you're interested in decentralization, right? Mm -hmm. You're interested in um, in not being in a corrupt environment. You're interested in fairness. Okay, good luck finding that at a company over 2,000 people, 5,000 people. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but it's like incredibly rare. The larger scale the company operates, the more impersonal its rules need to be, the more bureaucratic layers get thrown in. Um, the less your individuality is going to be rewarded. And so why would you want to decentralize the monetary system? And why would you see value in decentralizing the monetary system while simultaneously placing all your eggs in a basket of centralization, right? If you're getting like equity-based compensation in a, a large crypto firm, there's an inherent contradiction there, which is going to make... It's gonna cause cognitive dissonance and at least a portion of the smartest individuals who might otherwise apply. Um, the other challenge I think isn't crypto specific, but it's more, more has to do with how technology is changing where you know, it takes time to scale teams. You, know, you, need, you still need to interview people. This isn't just some coding test where some AI or machine learning program can be responsible for your hiring and firing. So the actual time it takes to grow a team from 10 to hundred to thousand is still gonna take over a couple of years. But if technology is changing so fast, and if um, social networks are are migrating around and and marketplaces are shifting in terms of uh, the popularity of the assets that they provide at a rate that's faster than you can stay, you can physically scale a company at, then there's just no way that large companies are going to be the most successful ones because they cannot move fast enough. Mm.
0: And this is where the, the the new level, the new crypto level conspiracy theories come in. Where these companies that find themselves in this situation are sort of incentivized to work with governments to pass regulation and policy that favors the bigger companies, so that it's harder to disrupt their moat um, yeah. in this industry, right? You buy well, the
1: Animal Farm, right? Animal Farm is obviously true. Right, you know, you say you want this, but then you're given a position of authority and all of a sudden your focus shifts from the stated goals of the revolution to protecting your own loot, right? And so, you know, that's one of the reasons why um, it makes sense to have term limits, right? You, because people have very different ideologies when they're on the ascent versus when they're at the top of the mountain. When they're, when they're on the ascent, and they think that they're better than their competition, they just want fairness because they think they can outwork their competition. But once you're at the top, you realize actually I can, as long as I can keep other people from surpassing me, and I can set up all these moats, then I'm gonna be the best. And so and so they benefit from, from restricted markets once they're at the top, or they benefited from freer markets when they were on their way up. And the human brain is adaptable enough to find logical reasons for why the thing that that selfishly benefits you is actually morally correct right so that's one thing that i noticed about working at, at google is I, I didn't like a lot of things didn't like a lot of things about how it worked until they started paying me more and the same things i didn't like still didn't like but i could i could overlook them a little bit easier mm. right and and if i stayed even longer and got paid even more same thing would happen you start to rationalize the inequity, you rationalize the unfairness, um, because there's always a counter argument. And, and the one challenge that very, very intellectually capable ha- people have is they're always capable of finding an intellectually sufficient argument to justify their selfishness. And that's what you're going to get when you, when you gain power um, on the ascent as a, a dissident or revolutionary. You're going to be smart enough to figure out why your situation is different and why it makes sense to adopt the same monopolistic practices that you said you hated 5, 10, 15 years in the past.
0: Mm, For sure. I think that's very wise. And like, I can speak that too. There are people that I had very deep conversations about Bitcoin before I even started working in the industry. So like pretty much within months of me, weeks and months of me reading the white paper, talking to people in finance about this, even people who have gone on to work in crypto the last like six, seven, eight years. Sometimes I'll meet up with them now and, and I'll be like, this isn't what we discussed. And they'll say, yeah, but this is hell of a lot better than the world before, right? So like, take it, nothing's perfect. So it's good enough. There's kind of that attitude. And speaking of like the kind of po- lobbying politicians to kind of get, um, at first it was about getting sort of, leave us alone, lobby you so that you don't pass policies that affect our business because we want to do mm-hmm. our crypto business. Then it became protect us so that we can keep, doing this business, and I'm not talking about my former employers, just general crypto. Um, mm-hmm. And now it's always become, well, I made so much money in crypto that I want to just run for president. I want to run for uh, Senate, I want to run for Congress. And their argument when I talk to them privately is, hey, you know, like, it's not perfect, but at least the crypto people running government will do a better job than the boomers running government. Like to that, mm-hmm. you say what? Are you skeptical?
1: Um, well, I mean, that that part of that actually leads me to believe that a lot of the ascent of, of crypto may be due to uh, competing governments, right? Because if I'm smart enough to uh, be a non-Western government, say a Sino-Russian government, that wants to weaken the West, well, if I can't militarily overtake the West, what if I can empower those who want to take, break down Western institutions? How's that? <laughs> but if I could put... You know, I'm not going to be able to, I'm not going to dismantle the dollar as a global reserve currency on my own, but what if I can empower a thousand relatively intelligent individuals who are determined to take down the dollar as a global reserve currency? Okay, what do I need to do? Oh, I just need to buy $30 million worth of Bitcoin a day to support that market and make sure it continues to go up and to the right, which is going to put $100 million in the hands of people who may not even realize that they're aligned with me ideologically, but I know they are right yeah. so I, I think that the you know those i hope those empowers aren't enough to realize that that could exist and you know i wouldn't be surprised if it does exist i can't imagine i'm smarter than vladimir putin or xi jinping right and i understand that that's a strategic benefit to them so they probably understand that it's a strategic benefit to themselves um so yeah people are always going to be selfish and i think that's one one reason why george washington turned down if it's true or t- told in school turned down the opportunity to be you know monarch of the united states is because this whole thing was an experiment in liberty, and self-governance. It wasn't an experience in, um, in you know, let making sure that we weren't ruled by Britain. It was like, how can we be free? And we realized that monarchies. I mean, all monarchies started at quasi-legitimately, right? You don't, you know, if, if you're going to be the monarch, if you're going to be William the Conqueror, you probably led an army um, with methods that led your troops to place trust in you. So you're probably not incredibly selfish. You're probably a little bit altruistic, um, shared land, shared the spoils of war with your colonels and with your generals, otherwise they wouldn't support you. And so you had to be able to form coalitions to overtake the lands that you invaded. It's just your grandchildren and their grandchildren no longer went through that battle. They are born into positions of authority. They're going to end up um, acting more selfishly. And so... You know, it is possible that the the people who rise in the nouveau riche, the crypto nouveau riche, they may be better at governance than our existing players. I don't know. But, you know, let them stay in power for a few generations and we're going to have the same problems that we've always had because human nature doesn't change even when times and technology do.
0: Yeah, I agree. I don't think it's a case of like replace. Uh, some ageist person with some younger person who holds crypto and maybe has some crypto-friendly policies and you solve all the rest of the problems with this country, with the United States, um, there's something systemic, I, I think, that roots in like fiat money. And, you know, you see like the stable coins taking over crypto the narrative. I feel like the narrative has been very much like um, twisted now. Uh, I just had like two topics I wanted to talk about. So as you went in your career, it was obviously first living in a major city, uh, Hong Kong, San Fran also. We know the problems have come into both of those places. Hong Kong with the protests, now with the lockdown, COVID is not seen as a free society as much now. San Fran with the the homelessness and the uh, sort of the home uh, home, uh, price going up and sort of the social unrest there, looting and such. And sort of as you've progressed your career from being detached from the big tech, big finance type of environments and able to work for yourself, has that like sort of uh, dictated your move to Austin and where where is that going to take you next? And where do you think people are going to over time live more and more sort of in back on the land and not in like cities and such?
1: Yeah, so my choice for Austin was, it's a temporary one, where I thought that Biden was going to destroy the dollar. And I thought that while I had a W-2 and was able to borrow a large amount of dollars, that I could re- repay them back at a, a much lower value. And so I bought my house with 95% leverage, 20x leverage, bought the house, right? People right. don't phrase them like that. Most people buy their house with 5x leverage, but I bought it with 20x. Um and, you know, who knows how that's gonna play out. Decent chance if the if interest rates keep rising, maybe I end up underwater for a little bit, but I think the long-term, long-term play is the dollar gets debased and the monthly payments that I have on the house become much less consequential. Um, but the plan was, you know, live, live here for a few years, make a few hundred thousand bucks flipping my house and then go, you know, live on land that can produce food. Because ultimately, you know, I do wanna become more independent from the system um, and you do need to be able to produce your own food in order to do that. Um, you know, I go to the gym, I like being around people, but I also don't mind kind of being in isolation for long periods of time. And so I think that uh, particularly with the internet or you know, even if I'm on a farm, if I have Wi-Fi, like I'm still podcasting with my friends, I'm still connected to the world, um, the value of land outside urban centers will increase because no longer do you need to be in physical proximity to uh, a local economy to make money. And so that's what drives uh, urban real estate prices and suburban real estate prices is the the monopolistic nature uh, of physical work. You have to live close. So if you have to live close, you're going to have to give a portion of your income um, in exchange for living close. Well, now that you no longer have to live close, then other attributes of real estate are going to become more valuable. Uh, You know, what the weather is like, maybe what uh, how fertile the land is, um, uh, maybe how few people there are will uh will be of value for some people so i think the attributes of valuable real estate will change as the nature of work changes and the nature of work will change as technology changes
0: Yeah, i totally agree with that um because like you know we we when we're living in hong kong having busy careers it's like or even san fran you eat out a lot or google gives you food right Mm -hmm. and and then you become this person who's as you you know get into fitness you want to do cook yourself uh and you know, I, one thing I underestimated was when I was living in Hong Kong all those years, the kitchens are so small, it's really hard to cook. Uh, yes. About cooking. And now that, you know, I've been living in North America and now in the Bahamas uh, for the last year and a bit, really got into cooking myself. So the next phase, obviously, is to uh, instead of restaurant food or then now grocery food, you now just grow your own food, right? Uh, that's- well, right.
1: And that also, you know, you also touch on something that we didn't talk about earlier with the uh, increased obesity in our society is I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that people are busier um, families have to have two incomes for the most part to be uh, stable and so what, what does that mean it means you don't have a, a homemaker right so if both parents are working um, tv becomes a third parent right and so and so the state gets more influence and in how or, or the powers to be get more influence in how your children think um, and third-party corporations have more influence on what you eat no surprise that people who, who have more of those two lose the ability to think independently and also lose the ability to process food in a manner um, that's in accordance with like a healthy body.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, like for people that met like as adults, like me and you, um, we, we didn't know each other before. It's not surprising to me that like we're thinking along very similar lines, uh, even though we're different gender, we're in different professions. I certainly we're not, not different
1: genders. <laughs> no, sorry, sorry, <laughs> not
0: different, different race. My bad, different race. I don't know, um, half Chinese. You half Chinese, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, I, I just think like that. I can recall our first conversation is One of those things where it's like you, you talk, touch upon this idea of like New and, and whatnot. Like I'm almost certain that like the life you're talking about will be the life you will live, and it will be the new phase of like living on your own on your farm, creating yourself. Uh certainly sure. I will I will be doing that not about the fitness topic, but on some other topic. I think we're absolutely gonna be right in like five to ten years. Speak to me about this w- expand on neurodivergent to the people who like don't understand what you mean by that and how that affects
1: yeah neurodivergent if you think differently than other people. Right. And so one thing that I do is it, this surprises people because people who know me think I'm smart. It actually takes me longer to learn concepts than it takes most people with Ivy league degrees. So one disadvantage that I had working in a corporate environment is took me probably four to eight months to learn how to do a job that Ivy leaguers could probably learn in two to four months. And it's because of how I approach learning. And and I do learn. I just learn differently. I don't learn as well in a regurgitative fashion as Ivy Leaguers. Ivy Leaguers were selected for their supreme ability to memorize and regurgitate and cheat their way through academia. That's what their superpower is, and that's reflected with high SAT scores, high GPAs. Uh, that's not me. I I didn't have a. I mean, I have a higher SAT score than the average person, but I scored 1380. I didn't score 1600. I had a higher high school GPA than the average person, but I had like a four Oh, I didn't have a four, seven, right. Uh, weighted GPA, including my AP classes. And so, um, I'm not an elite student. I'm a good student, but I'm not an elite student. And, uh, and what, and part of that is because I learn things in a way that makes sense to me. And so it just, it's like, it takes my brain longer to digest information into, uh, into bites that are compatible with my worldview in ways that I will understand. But what that means is, four months down the line, when that other person, when that other Ivy League educated person has figured out how to do the job two months in, well, I haven't given up two months in just because the other person learned how to do it and I didn't do it. I'm fighting against cognitive dissonance that, um, man, I'm learning this thing, but this is proving something else that I'm learning to be invalid. So what is an overarching narrative that can explain these inconsistencies? And I think people who are closer to ENTJ, INTJ, Myers-Briggs types uh, are gonna be more acutely aware of narrative inconsistencies. So it's gonna take them longer to to digest certain information um, than the, the people who are extremely good students. And what that means is they're going to have more problems with corporate narratives. They're going to have more problems with institutional narratives because they're going to see edge cases, or they may even be an edge case Hmm. that represent um, um, an exception to the rules. And the rules don't align for, for the edge cases, rules are created for mass market. And so when you realize that I think independently, I think I'm smarter than the people who I'm working with, but the system that I'm in doesn't reward the type of intelligence that I have. In fact, it punishes it because the people who are more obedient are able to put their heads down and just work for the company for more hours of their day without feeling like their soul's being robbed from them. <laughs> I need to get into a space that rewards me for my differences rather than punishes me for it. And one thing that I tweeted out a couple months ago is that, um, you know, average people uh, try to remediate their flaws in order to be successful where highly successful people amplify their flaws in -hmm. order to be successful, because they found a niche that rewards them for the same personality quirks that are punished in nearly every other field in their lives. And I saw this as an elite baseball player where the best players were kind of incapable of thinking logically, but that allowed them to overcome the pressure of competing in pressure situations. I noticed the best sales reps that I worked with couldn't do math, but that allowed them to pitch higher dollar amount packages to people without them realizing that they were ripping them off. Um, There's a lot of benefits to being imperfect. And a lot of your life and career will steer you towards rectifying those imperfections so you can fit in with the group. But if you're lucky and fortunate and try hard enough, you you may be able to find something that rewards you for the same thing that you're being punished for in every other walk of your life.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I want to just get into that for a deal deeper. Like when, when you hear, talk about neurodivergence, um, I think in a scientific way, it means that like I think nine, 90% of people are left-brained, and so they're right-handed. I think nine yeah. percent of people are left-handed, like a normal left-handed, like like a Bill Gates type. Sure. Um, and then I think the last 1% um, is split between uh, ambidextrous people who are both sides of the brain doing the same thing, like yeah. pitch with both their left hand and the right hand. And I think personally, I fall into this thing called cross dominant or mixed handedness, where I'm much better with my left hand or my left side of the body at certain tasks, and I'm better at other tasks with uh, my right hand and mm-hmm. I switch it up, I would be very bad at both tasks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it reflects that there's like two different brains inside my brain that mm-hmm. are competing the process differently. So on some days I could seem very hippie, art, artist type person. And other days I can seem like a generic Chinese person who's like good at math, that's like stereotypical like um, uh, left, left brain person. Like when you think about that way, do you think like the fact that most people are doing this nine to five routine, study hard at school, getting the A's and getting to university. Do you think that's something that the society has like trained into them? Or do you, uh, and that's because of the way that their brain is kind of like made up? Or do you think this is like something that there can be something like a great awakening where people find this idea of thinking outside the box? Like Like if we had trained kids differently, Then the current school system does that do you think we can live in a world where more people are this kind of creative entrepreneurial type.
1: um yeah the question is of what order of magnitude, so I think 150 years ago when most Americans were farmers they were all small business owners, they had to be, and so I think that. Um, While people may not have been as well versed in like Shakespeare or Nietzsche or uh, John Stuart Mill 150 years ago, not that most people are very well right now, but um, they were much better at arithmetic, uh, understanding if somebody was lying to them. Um, They were better at the skills that were needed to put food on their table at that time. And so, you know, one, one of the things that isn't really thought about or talked about much is that as societies become more, more complex, as technology becomes more sophisticated, um, it allows people to be dumber, mm-hmm. right? And so the human brain is actually uh, shrinking, shrunken in size over the last 30,000 years And nobody seems to know why. No anthropologists seem to know why, but I think I have a good idea. And the idea that I have is if your food supply is stable, you don't need to think as much as if your food supply is uh, uh, unstable, unstable. And so um, if you have to use the stars to navigate, or if you have to use your sense to figure out where the animals are that you're going to kill, you're not able to do that with, you know, substandard cranial capacity. You don't have to do that anymore. You just need to figure out how to drive to Walmart, and you don't even know how to get need to know how to get there. You can just figure out how to turn your phone on and download Google Maps, and Google Maps will tell you how to get there. Mm-hmm. And so, as technology changes, um, it increases our reliance on technology because computers make us supermen in terms of our our processing powers. But it also it removes a lot of the work that's necessary to live life. And so, one rule of thumb looking at humans and every other animal is, if you give us the opportunity to be lazy, we are gonna be lazy. And so I don't think that there's gonna be a, uh, you know, massive renaissance in uh, artisans, uh, unless there's a a technological change that necessitates it. I do think, yeah, with with more opportunity economy, the the portion of neurodivergent thinkers um, who can express themselves will grow. Right. But that doesn't mean that it's ever
0: going to grow beyond 10 or 20 percent of the population. I see. So maybe it'll stay like relatively small percent of population. But I think the influence of these people and the the wage earning potential, the earning potential of these people will relatively grow as the economy uh, incentivize different activities, right?
1: It will, but then the incumbents are going to do the same thing that incumbents always do, which is create rules and restrictions and try to tax the people who, are, who they perceive to be uh, at risk of eating their lunch. And so one thing that I think libertarians fail to uh, internalize is most people aren't libertarians. And so even if libertarians are successful in making that billion dollars or starting that new company, uh, a much larger percentage of the population feels that they have they're entitled to a cut of it. And if they democracy, they can achieve their cut of it. And so I think what we're seeing right now, the most recent student loan bailouts are just uh, you know, the, the first chip to fall, first domino to fall, is that uh, the dinosaur industries, the dinosaur institutions that uh, are no longer economically viable at scale They're not gonna just be like, oh yeah, what we're doing doesn't exist anymore. We'll just close up shop and pass the baton to the next guy who's better situated. No, that's not how the human brain works. They're gonna fight to maintain their relevance just like the mainstream media did during Trump's election. So look at what the mainstream media did from 2016 to 2020 in terms of crowding out competition, um, pushing narratives of fake news, Russian interference. All of this stuff was to disparage their competition to try to preserve the monopoly that they once held, but were fast losing. And multiply that out to every other industry that's gonna get disrupted because you're gonna see the same behavior applied across all of these industries because the one thing they all have in common is they're run by humans. And humans will always try to hold on to power when uh, an emerging force is seen as a
0: threat to to eat their lunch. I see, and so even if the, do you agree that the direction is towards the, the right direction, but just there's going to be a lot of zigzags along the way, or you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, the direction is right, but then, you know, guess what? What do you they think they're going to do with the 87,000 IRS agents? They're going to start auditing all these small businesses. So the overhead that's going to be required to right. start and maintain your small business is going to be higher five years from now than it is right now, right? And so what the incumbents are going to try to do is starve out their co- competition from getting started and try to obstruct
0: them in their movements and try to steal from them every step of the way, because yeah, that's people being yeah, people. That, Like if the response to this student loan stuff, because you know that your know, universities are going to increase the uh, tuition by 10K automatically, knowing that, hey, whatever, you can complain to your politicians 10 years from now and get that written off. Um, if the response is to do homeschooling, and it's in response to be entrepreneurship, do your own uh, business. You tweeted out that the government next thing will be will tax you if you're homeschool.
1: Yeah, something like that. They'll come up with they'll, they'll come up with some excuse for it. You know, um, they they won't call it a a, um, a tax for uh, running your homeschool, but it could they could require you to have a credential teacher or something like that. Okay. So so somehow the credential system is going to benefit from it, right? And so it's a, a, what, what they're gonna do, it's gonna be like a very predictable process. They're gonna talk about some homeschool kids who learned some like really questionable ideology that led to one of them like creating a, a you know, explosive yeah. device and became a terrorist. A super scary thing, right? Well, the way we can uh, remediate this is by requiring them to be taught by licensed instructor, instructors who enforcing I think they're already forced to take uh, uh, you know tests to prove their literacy and their uh, economic or their educational improvement every step of the way but the next step is to require licensing right and and say well you're not allowed to to teach your kids unless you have this license Um, and the license it costs $1,500 a year to have now we know that that might be a you know might be a little bit prohibitive for some people, but it costs us money to make sure that we have qualified individuals running the licensing process to make sure that we're safe against uh you know these white supremacists who are using these homeschools to radicalize their kids. And they're always gonna call dissidents radicals, right? Because that's Silvio Berlusconi did it when he kept getting attacked by Italians. You'd always call them mentally ill. I don't know whether they were or they weren't. I just know quite randomly, every time somebody attacked them in public, like I was mentally ill. Interesting. Probably not. Um and, and so uh, you know if you introduce a $1500 impediment, that's not going to get rid of all of the people, but it, it probably actually will get rid of like 40% of them because most Americans don't have $1,500 easily accessible. Um, and so you know as long as you can hamstring the, the majority and then, you know, that can buy you time to figure out how to hamstring those who are a little bit more uh, more economically prepared, um, you know, you could, you could do something, uh, you know, as, as much as, um, you know, offering tax benefits to people who've gone through certain schooling, right? You know, you can say, well, um, we, want, we want to make sure that everybody who's gone through an accredited university is able right. to pay back their loans. So we're going to have a uh, variable tax rate for people who've gone through the, the state-funded school system. So they're not going to call it the state-funded school system. They're going to call it the formal education system. Uh, they're going to be on this this rate table, where everybody else will be on that rate table, um, and it's fair because we we really want to encourage people to uh, to go to school because people dropping out of school is like the biggest problem that we face in society or something that they make up, and uh, they'll figure out a way to get their money. They'll figure out a way to hamstring their competition through rules and regulations. We you know we can probably lay out about six different strategies, and chances are they're going to pick one, two, or three of them.
0: Yeah, like if if both parents are working, you get a tax break. So now you don't want to stay home and take care of the homeschooled kids. You want to go work and things like that. Something Uh, something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Um, So I want to wrap up. And so for anyone who's been listening to this, Alex is clearly the most fit person we've had on the show so far. Might be the most. I don't know. We haven't haven't
1: done the app shot. Let's see.
0: Uh, (laughs) There you go. Uh, Poor lighting. The sun's coming down. There you go. So now you know the Twitter pictures are are not fake. Um, yeah. So for any of the audience that's been listening to this for an hour and a half, and they were you know, listening to it on a couch or in the car and not exercising, take it away with sort of like one uh, fitness tip for them, and then how they can find you and get started on their fitness journey um, and buying your products.
1: So what you want to focus on in fitness is building your metabolism and also introducing elements that have a chance of regulating the food you eat, right? And so by that, I mean, how do we increase your passive income? as as an individual. So your passive income is how many calories you burn. The way you increase your passive income is by getting a very strong lower body, right? People don't realize that the lower body lifts that you do are going to build more muscle mass than the upper body lifts because your lower body has more muscle to build than your upper body. So if you want to maximize the amount of calories you burn in your sleep, you need to train your legs heavy. Um, If you want to limit the amount of foods that you're eating, Nutrient dense protein dominant food is a very good uh, first step, being properly hydrated, properly rested, not consuming too much alcohol, other great steps, curtailing sugar and carb consumption can be very helpful for some people in making them effectively satisfied, not eating as much. Um, And then intense interval training, um, I found also has the uh, potential to moderate appetite. So you guys see how I look. Uh, I don't count calories. I don't go hungry. I don't hate my workouts. Everything that I do in the gym has a performance goal. I'm not trying to like get shredded for some event. I just always look this way or some, you know, some degree of it pretty close. Anyway, sometimes better, sometimes worse, but always approximately like this. Um, Because my relationship with, with fitness is sustainable. I don't do anything one day that I'm not willing to do every day for the rest of my life. And so if you're interested in learning more about my programs, follow me on Twitter, follow me on Instagram, Alex Feinberg1, not sure if you can see my name here, F-E-I-N-B-E-R-G, Alex Feinberg1 on both of those platforms. My DMs are open, hit me up, Uh, always good to chat. And, um, you know, follow me on Twitter, I run, as Jack mentioned, a a new product promotion every day, whether it's my training, my recipes, my eating framework, my masterclass, even do salary negotiation, because that's something that I figured out how to get good at. Uh, in my quest to be a sovereign individual. So same topics that uh, that we're speaking about now, I can speak to at great length and have a lot of um, ebooks that uh, expand upon these ideas in ways that uh, really make a difference in a lot of people's lives.
0: That's awesome. I've already bought one of your books. I've done a couple of in-person training sessions with you uh, and uh, so look forward to having you talking again. So thanks, Alex.
1: Thanks, Jack.